Hello and welcome to the latest and greatest edition of the Quadcast. I am your host, John McAlevey. For those of you dropping by for the first time, welcome and thanks for joining us. But where have you been? This is Season 3, Episode 1 of the podcast that is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, but is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of the quadcast as your weekly 30 to 45-minute session of OT and PT for the soul. We have finally reached June, and the hot summer days have begun. I don't know about you, but as a C3-4 incomplete quad, I cannot regulate my body temperature too well. So on extremely warm, sunny days, you will find the kid inside enjoying his air conditioning. All kidding aside, those of us in the spinal cord injured community really have to be careful in the coming months because the heat can be very dangerous to us all. So my public service announcement for my fellow SCI brethren is, be careful out there. I hope you had a chance to listen to my last episode, which featured Rebecca Torres, founder of Backbones, whose main mission is to help people with spinal cord injury or disease and their families connect with their communities by creating events and experiences that promote awareness and engage people with all disabilities. Rebecca is an artist, photographer, costume designer, illustrator, and C5 spinal cord injury survivor and thriver. You can hear our great conversation along with my other episodes on my website, which is www.quadcast.org, or by accessing the show on the following podcasting hosts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. As for those events that Backbones hosts, their next is on Wednesday, June 8th, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Time. The topic is Pregnancy and SCI, a conversation about pregnancy experiences with women with SCI and a researcher who studies pregnancy decision-making for women with disabilities. And now, on to today's show. So, how many of you have ever watched the television show Shark Tank? If so, you know that the hosts slash sharks can be brutal. You also know that they are very selective in whom they agree to do business with. How do you think you would do in front of these sharks with that business idea that you've been mulling around all your life? My guest today, Anthony Jang, did and lived to tell about it. Following a lecture in his freshman season at the University of Southern California, which featured guest speakers Mark Burnett and Mark Cuban, Anthony pitched his Envoy Now business, an on-demand food delivery startup capitalizing on the neglected college market. It scored him $100,000 from the Sharks for 10% of his business. Not long after that, he accepted $100,000 from the Teal Foundation to drop out of school and focus on Envoy Now full-time. How's that for the beginning of your college career? Life couldn't be better, or so it seemed. Unfortunately, Anthony suffered a spinal cord injury following a dive into a swimming pool in Las Vegas. Everything he had been working on was now put on hold, and the young man who made building businesses from the ground up his career would now have to do just that for his new body and mind. Following this brief time out for a word from my good friends at Canine Companions for Independence, Anthony Jang will join me to share his remarkable story. And that, my friends, is next. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a Canine Companions for Independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? 
To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. And we are back. It is now my pleasure to introduce the aforementioned Anthony Jang. Anthony, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me on board. I'm excited for our conversation. Yes, I've been looking forward to this. I actually got your name from my previous guest, Rebecca Torres from Backbones. Are you familiar with her organization? I am, yeah. I think her and our organization are doing some pretty incredible stuff. Amazing. She is something else. And the events that they put on, um, bringing families and, and people with spinal cord injury and all sorts of disabilities together to sort of connect, you know, there's, you know, we're all in this together and it's really an amazing thing that they've undertaken. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So what I usually like to do with my shows is begin at the beginning. So Anthony, where did you grow up and what were some things that you enjoyed doing as a young person? I grew up Actually, uh, in a lot of places, I was born here in California, but spent some, most of my childhood uh, in Beijing and Hong Kong. Um, was a big swimmer growing up. Uh, did pretty much swam competitively from the time that I was four years old until graduating high school. Um, and that was swimming and tennis were like my two biggest loves um, and was, was pretty academically inclined as well. So um, did a lot of uh, sort of. Uh, competitions there, uh, student government and things like that as well. Very cool. I know now you're in Palo Alto. I know Stanford has great swimming there. Was that uh, was that something that you were drawn to as a youngster? Yeah, so I ended up finishing up high school in Palo Alto. Um, and, and yeah, like in the summer, they have a swim club called the Palo Alto uh, Swim Association. And I would be a part of that club and competing during the summers and, you know, pretty much whenever swim season during school wasn't wasn't in effect yeah and the weather out there you guys have the best weather so you can swim pretty much outdoors all year round right yeah but although when you're when you're getting up at, to do uh you know 5 30 a.m swim practices and it's all dark it it's still not fun jumping into <laughs> jumping yeah. into a pool sure sure and in northern california it's chilly up there it's not like you're down in san diego Yep. All right. Well, Anthony, seeing that you would become this amazing business creator and entrepreneur at such a young age, were there signs that you saw that distinguished yourself uh, in school as a younger person? Um, I think I always wanted to start my own business at some point. Um, you know, when I was growing up, it was when you know Facebook and the iPhone and you know, all these tech-related entrepreneurs were you know, almost like your, your celebrities, right? They were, they were touching billions of people. And I thought that was so cool. Um, so my goal always was to get to a point where I could run a business. Um, but I thought it was the more traditional route, right? You study hard, you get into a good college, you study hard in college to get a good internship and you get a good internship to get a good job, be able to maybe then go back and get your MBA and then start a business. But, yeah. Um, you know, I took a more, more untraditional path. Than that. Yes, you did. Did you have any influential teachers or role models who saw your potential early on and encouraged you to dream big? Um, I would say that, um, honestly, I did not have the, the funnest time in school. Um, I was always someone who I think thought, thought they were smarter than they were. So it definitely clashed a little bit with teachers. But um, I would say, like, in terms of encouragement, uh, had a lot of support from my family, um, just believing in me. And I think uh, having me believe in me as well to, to take to take risks and, and, and kind of forge my own path. Um, I think those are things that were, were really kind of helpful in helping me build that confidence. Sure. So you mentioned thinking you were going to have to go the traditional route. Uh, College-wise, why did you choose the University of Southern California? And what were you majoring? in so a couple of reasons one i love los angeles uh, i thought it was really really just the best place on earth where i still live today um, and number two they had an undergraduate business school so not not too many uh, colleges in the united states have an undergrad business program most of them are you know graduate mba programs 
Um, and I had done a summer program there between my sophomore and junior year of high school. Um, I was earning college credits, doing an entrepreneurship program, and you know, got to meet some really great folks and really great professors there. And uh, that was a big reason why I wanted to come back to USC um, and uh, was able to, to take that and was, was majoring in business. Mm-hmm. Now, I've read that while studying with some friends in the library on, I don't know if it was one specific evening or, or over uh, a couple of weeks or so, that they commented on how they would really love to see if someone could bring them a burrito right now. They didn't want to lose their spot in the in the library, and to which you said, I'll do it for $10. First of all, is that true? And secondly, is that the beginnings of your entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, that was really the uh, the start of Envoy Now, my first food delivery business. Um, and to, exactly to your point, it was just a bunch of us studying a library late at night, um, and we're all just hungry, right? And one of my friends was like, oh, my God, I would literally pay somebody $10 if they could bring me a burrito without me having to, like, leave my study spot where, you know, when you're studying, right, like, you got all your, all your textbooks piled up, you, you know, kind of, like set up a little station there you're you're like a fort so yeah you really you're in the to, zone right sure oh and someone else might take your study spot or sorry so it's you know kind of a huge hassle to be able to get food and, and get back in the zone so that's um that's when i took him up on his offer i was hungry too ten dollars would pay for another <laughs> breed so i was like hey i need a study break anyways you save my spot i'll go get us both burritos came back and did it and, earned myself some money. Yeah. And did a sort of a light bulb go off in your head to think like, hey, there's got to be other people that are in the same boat that are all, I mean, listen, I was in college student as well. We're always hungry, right? It's not like mom is making us our our meals all the time. So was it at that point where you thought, wow, I might be onto something here? Yeah, I think it wasn't really like an onto something, but it was something that my roommate and I kept on discussing me like, hey, this could be a cool way to make some more money on the side, right? Cause like everyone's call schedules are different. We've always got downtime and during that downtime, why not make some extra money, right? We're, there's three, I think common traits of a college student is we're always hungry. We're always lazy and we always need more money. So yes. It's really just kind of preying on, on those three attributes to kind of create this food delivery service. Yeah. And what was the, you know, would you get the food from the USC cafeterias? Would you go to um, restaurants that were on the outskirts of campus? How did it start that way? So it was it was mainly the outskirt restaurants, um, you know, the sort of like third party, you know, Chipotle's, Chick-fil-A's of the world, because um, those were the ones that were most popular. So we would we would start with those. And what was our really like sort of defining feature was that um, we would bring it exactly to where you were right so for example in that night in the library we were we were up on the third floor you know we were in this little corner study room you know study room b on the third floor library right a a normal delivery driver would have no idea how to get up there and not even have the access to get up there right a student you need to swipe in so because we saved them save the student that just extra step of convenience and can literally deliver to your bed your couch you know, we've even done multiple deliveries to people in the middle of class in a large study hall before. Yeah, so it's just that sort of like literal last mile convenience that really made all the difference for us. You know, you mentioned that when you're bringing it into class, it reminds me of, and this is well before your time, Fast Times at Ridgemont High where they have uh, a pizza delivered to class. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, if this if it's our right. time, right? Yeah. Funny stuff. So now how, how long after that first night does Envoy now really, first of all, get its name and then really begin to take off? Yeah, I would say my roommate and I ideated on the name for maybe a week or so. We just had, you know, a brain dump, had a bunch of names and, you know, Envoy in French means to, to deliver or to go. Um, so it's like Envoy now is like deliver now. So um, it was also... It wasn't our like most catchy name, but it was definitely the cheapest domain for us to purchase. We got that for like ten dollars. <laughs> so, all right, we don't need a perfect name as long as people can spell it and and say it back. That's fine. Yeah, it doesn't need the catchiest thing in the world. So yeah, that's, that's... sure. And now, how about talk to me about Shark Tank? Uh, I watched the video where they were on campus. It was uh, Mark Cuban and Mark Burnett were there. First of all, 
at the end, I know your professor said, is there anybody out there that wants to pitch an idea? Was it completely random that, that you were chosen to go up there? And how nervous were you? Or was it something like, all right, here's my shot. I'm in the zone here. I'm going to sit down rather than stand in front of these guys. And I'm just going to let it rip. Yeah, I did not know that I'd be pitching him. I was hoping that we would be able to, but um, you know, there's a ton of students with a ton of ideas in that auditorium, right? It was like thousands of people. And um, yeah, I, you know, in the video, there were startups that went before me and they just got ripped to shreds by Mark Cuban, right? And um, I think by sitting next to him rather than standing before him, it just put us a little bit more on the same level gave me a little bit more confidence and I was just able to just, you know, just let it rip, even though I was really, really nervous. Without a doubt. I mean, you watch that show and they, they're not, uh, they don't sugarcoat anything. They really go after people. They want to make sure that, uh, that they're watching their P's and Q's and you were really up on your stuff. You were able to, to, uh, get the numbers out there. And I think that they were impressed. Now, how, floored were you when they agreed to your terms the hundred thousand dollars for ten percent of the company i was crazy because when when he asked me for the offer i didn't even know it was a real pitch i thought it was a mock pitch so i thought you know the my expectation was just to get feedback from from a few billionaires right that in itself is so valuable i did not know when that there would be real money on the table. So when he asked me, like, hey, what are you looking for? I just thought of the biggest numbers that I could think of in my head at that point, which was at that point only a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So that was that was what happened. I was really floored when we actually got, you know, got that handshake deal. Yeah. And was there a part of you that after it was all over thought, my God, why didn't they say five hundred thousand or something like that? Oh uh, no. My I was in full celebration mode that night. I, I ran to my girlfriend's apartment and was like banging on her door and you know, we ended up meeting with Mark Cuban later that night at our you know our campus bar and it was it was the most surreal night of my life and I think that was really a, a pretty life-changing night for me because it gave me so much confidence in being like oh wow like you know a billionaire is actually noticing my you know little dorm room side hustle and thinks it's actually worth something yeah but you know prompted me and encouraged me to want to be like all right well Maybe I don't need that MBA. Maybe I don't even need to finish college. Like I can, I can do this. I can figure it out. Yes. Now, after, um, after coming to the agreement on stage, what was the next step and how hands-on or helpful were they, uh, in the immediate aftermath? So it was, it was a few months where we were just you know, learning more about each other and about the business. Um, and I would say that, you know, Mark, both Marks are super, super busy, but they were able to just whenever there are big strategic level questions, they're able to help us out with, right? Like, just like, hey, like, you know, in, introduction to another investor or um, should, you know, we're trying to expand here, what what should our strategy be, right? Things like that. Um, and yeah, ultimately we ended up um, actually um, going into another accelerator program, taking on some additional funding and investment and, and just growing really quickly from there on. Awesome, just being able to pick their brains, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. Well, now that day and the agreement obviously changed your life because then you would drop out of school to pursue your company uh, with the help of the Teal Foundation. How did that come about? So that came a few months later. Um, I had really not known anything about the Teal Foundation, um, but after the whole Mark Cuban thing, you know, there's quite a bit of publicity around it um, and was able to get connected with the one of the program directors from the Teal Foundation, who then told me all about, you know, what what Peter Teal's Teal Fellowship is all about. And uh, for those of you who don't who are listening, it's a uh, hundred thousand dollar grant that he gives up to 20, 25 students every single year. Um, and the only criteria is that you have to be under, I think, the age of twenty one. And once you take it, um, you know, he's not going to take any equity in your company. It's a it's a full on personal grant. But you have to be able to take a leave of absence from school and, and do whatever you're doing full time. Yeah. So really, the forcing to be like, whoa, well, uh, you know, there's multiple billionaires right now telling me to drop out of school. I should I should probably listen. I was just going to say, here you are hanging out with your buddies in the library. And then a few months later, you're hobnobbing with three billionaires. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty surreal. Oh, how 
change for me. Yeah. And f- yeah, for those of you that don't, people don't know, Peter Thiel is also a billionaire. So that was great. So now you're concentrating on Envoy. Now, what did your parents think about dropping out of school? Uh, it was not an easy conversation. I'll tell you that. Because <laughs> they're like, you know, we, we just got you here, right? You worked so hard to get to this school and, you know, was, was on a scholarship as well. Um, and basically how I convinced them was two ways. One was introduce them to a lot of existing Teal fellows. And, you know, once they got to talk to them, it's like, Hey, look, these are, you know, these are not like delinquent college dropouts, right? Everyone's building really cool stuff. And then the second one was that I was able to get just a leave of absence from school where, um, all of my credits were still saved, you know, nothing would be disrupted. I'd still have my scholarship, all that. So it really was like a zero risk thing to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, at this point, life couldn't be any better, right? So now things are about to take a turn. So um, tell us about the circumstances of your spinal cord injury. What do you remember beforehand in the immediate aftermath? And what were you told initially by your doctors? Yeah, so this was was when we had secured your funding and things were going really well with the business. We expanded to, I think at that point, we're at like 12 or 13 campuses nationwide. Um, and um, I'd gone to Vegas um, for um, for fraternity formal. And um, I made the mistake of uh, you know, jumping into a pool and hitting my head on the bottom and you know instantly had a burst fracture on my C5 vertebrae. Uh, and I, I remember everything. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was kind of murky in the pool. As, as I mentioned, with have been a swimmer my entire life, so I've done this tens of thousands of times and just hit the bottom wrong, hit my head, and then just remember um, a lot of just numbness and just not being able to float back up. Yeah. Uh, just held my breath for as long as I could, and thankfully um, had had someone nearby come and, and grab me and, and kind of lift me to the surface, and I just remember for the longest time, just being so confused. I had no idea what a spinal cord injury was. We had to wait, you know, for the paramedics to come get me and, and ship me to the ICU. And, um, you know, I think, I don't remember like, you know, you know how a lot of spinal cord injury people do like, my doctor said I'd never walk again. Right. I don't think ever told me that, but, um, it was, it was pretty clear that this was very, very serious. And I was immediately, doing multiple surgeries to stabilize my neck, right? I was completely paralyzed on a vent. Like to me, I was like, oh my God, like I, I never had surgery in my life before. Like I was surprisingly very healthy, like never had any broken bones or anything like that. So this was a huge, huge shock into the medical world. Yeah. Well, uh, you certainly picked uh, for your first surgery, you, you picked the wrong one, right? Oh my goodness. Yeah. I know. Yeah, so- I, I like to tell people, um, that because I go out with uh, Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation back here in New Jersey where I work, we go out and speak to children in schools where it's a Think First program. And we tell them, you know, if you break your arm, you can put a cast on it and you're, it will heal and get better. If you break your leg, the same thing. But two things that will never heal if you bang them up are your brain and your spinal cord. So you and I both found out that um, it's once you do damage to it, unfortunately, things will never be the same again. So after the multiple surgeries and whatnot, where did you do your rehab, Anthony? I did my rehab at Craig Hospital in, in Englewood, Colorado. Um, so um, that was the, the best, you know, the best spinal cord and uh, traumatic brain injury rehab um, center, at least on the western half of the United States um, and stayed there for, for a year. So I was, I was inpatient for, for four months, four or five months, and then outpatient for another, uh, you know, almost more than six months um, before I was, uh, you know, able to return back home. That's amazing. So a full year. You know, I tell you, as I mentioned, I work at Kessler, which is also a um, highly renowned uh, spinal cord injury facility here. And I have to tell you, when I was an inpatient, this is going back 30 years now, this August, I stayed there for almost five months like yourself. I stayed as an inpatient a long time. Nowadays, Anthony, they're getting folks in and out there in two and three weeks. It's it's so sad. People don't get it. They're just starting to get better. And the insurance companies are tearing them out. It's so sad. Yeah, because I know like, you know, for for a high level quad like me, 
I only had 12 weeks in there, but I had so many complications with, you know, especially given that I'd had a collapsed lung and pneumonia and like a lot of just breathing problems. Yeah. And kept on getting extended. Uh, thankfully, you know, with, with my insurance being able to at least cover a little bit more, but I do remember that it was, it was a huge battle. And, and, uh, to your point, like Paros, they only get like six or eight weeks. Right. And, um, yeah. if you have bad insurance, it could be less. Right. And it's like, there's so much to learn about a spinal cord injury other than just not being able to move what's surface level that people see that you need to understand. And, you know, I, I definitely credit, um, you know, just my mindset and being able to just feel educated about my injury to the education that Craig hospital was able to like, not only just give me, but to, you know, to my girlfriend who's now my wife and, and full-time caretaker, right? Like the, mm-hmm. uh, the support system is, is almost even more important to, to have. Yeah. And that, that, yeah, that leads me into my next question. I was going to ask you, I know for me, if, if I did not have my amazing family and, and tremendous amount of friends, I don't know whether I would have been able to do this, uh, at least initially, how great was your support staff? It sounds like, uh, McKenna, your wife now has been with you from day one. She's amazing. I want you to brag about her in a little bit, but tell me also about your family and your friends. Um, how, how was their support for you? Not only physically, but mentally, because people think, oh, you know, you can't move, you can't walk and, and that's awful physically. But a lot of this spinal cord injury stuff, mentally, it can get you even more. Yeah, I think really like having McKenna pretty much drop everything in her life for me was was really the make or break. Um, you know, she was in, enrolled in college at USC with me and took an entire year off of her school to be my support system. Um, you know, unfortunately, my family, um, given that they lived in China in Beijing at the time, were not able to not able to be there um, okay. right away. She was really my my like pretty much main and only uh, you know, support system that I could count on. Um, after a few months, I had you know family come in and you know they would be able to you know stay in outpatient housing and come see me and help me out and things like that. But McKenna was the only person was who was there you know every single day. Um, you know even in the ICU when you're not allowed to you know to be with the patient, like she was sleeping on uncomfortable chair in my room because she was so worried about my you know about my oxygen levels dropping in the middle of the night and me needing a respiratory therapist to you know come come help me breathe so um, you know she sacrificed so much that's amazing that's amazing you have a great one there i know some there were some folks that were inpatients with me i know two gentlemen in particular that were married at the time and they were high quads and unfortunately for them their wives just couldn't deal with it. And they both wound up getting divorced within about six months. They just couldn't, they couldn't hack it all. So for you to find McKenna and have her be so supportive, um, is, is a gift and it's just so amazing. I'm so glad that you guys found each other. Yeah, absolutely. I, I cannot, uh, cannot imagine my life without her. Oh my goodness. Now I know one one thing for, for like a year or so. Right. And like, we're not married, right? So it's like the the way easier route would have just been to be like, all right, I can't deal with this. I got to go back to school. But right, you know, she, she, you know, she was just incredible and is incredible. Absolutely. Now I I know that one thing that most people do, and and you can see it even when there's storylines on television shows and in movies, when someone has a spinal cord injury, all anybody wants to know is, oh, are they going to walk again? Are they going to walk again? And, you know, just totally discounting the fact that, hey, is so-and-so going to be able to feed themselves or dress themselves and do all that kind of stuff. Talk about how important those aspects were to your recovery. Yeah, because I think... When, when you have a high level injury, like walking is like the last thing on your mind, but right. Like my biggest goal for the longest time was even just be able to breathe without a ventilator. You know, there was a good, a good chance. The doctors said that I would have to be vent dependent for the rest of my life. And I did not want that. No, but that was really the, the biggest struggle for me was to be able to like become strong enough to, to not need a ventilator throughout my daily life because obviously lugging around something that big is is a huge hassle 
Um, so that was goal number one. And then goal number two is be able to feed myself. And you know, my arms are extremely weak and can even lift, lift, um, you know, my own arm to my mouth, let alone with the fork with food. Right. So yeah, that was a big thing. Cause I, you know, I, I love food in life. That's, you know, a big, big reason of what gives me joy. Um, and being on events and, you know, living off of a feeding tube for three months, not eating a single thing was, was torture. Yeah, absolutely. Anthony, tell me how long and see if you can even remember back this far, how long did it take your mind to go from thinking about nothing more than getting better and healing and, and doing as much as you can to get off the ventilator um, back to Envoy now? I mean, when did that come into your mind again, or was that something that didn't you didn't even want to think about for a while? So I, I do remember because it, it happened quite abruptly. Um, this was about six months into my stay. You know, I obviously had not thought about the business or the outside world for quite some time. Um, I was, you know, really just purely in denial. Like I didn't even look at my phone for the first six months because I just did not even want to know what was going on outside uh, outside the hospital. Um, and I remember just getting a call from my co-founder and he was like, Hey, uh, I think we should shut the company down. I'm like, Whoa, what do you mean? Shut the company down? Like, cause I didn't know how the business was going. He's like, well, like, um, it's just not the same, uh, running the company and we're not growing as fast as we thought we would. And, um, you know, we just raised funding too. And he was like, I think we should just return the money to the investors. And something inside me was just like, no, right. Like I, at that point, like pretty much felt, felt so lost, right? I'd lost, you know, who I was as like you know, physically and was, you know, was starting to set in that how serious my accident was. I was on a vent, right? I, I was like, well, I can't lose this. This is like the only other thing I have as a part of my identity and at least my brain's working, right? And that was when I was like, well, you can quit the business, but I'm not, I'm gonna come back as CEO. I, you know, talked to all of our main investors on our board. They were supportive. And uh, while I was still inpatient, came back as CEOs of the company and was running it remotely um, for, you know, for, for until we got acquired. That's unbelievable. So you were running the company out of your, uh, out of your patient's room at Craig Hospital? Yeah. So I would be doing, you know, you know how it is inpatients. They, they really do pack your schedule, right? You do yeah. ADL, your PT, you do your OT, you got it wait in line for food and all that and uh, trying to take a nap in the middle of the day. And in between all those, all those sessions, I'd be taking calls. So I'd be like that person in the, you know, in the hallways that you'd see in the, you know, inpatient who's like on their power chair, but like always talking on the phone while they're going from point A to point B because I was in meetings, right? And I was needing to talk with our team members and just knowing what's going on on each of our markets. That is unbelievable. And the folks that you were speaking with, the investors, did did they all know that you had had an accident? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I told everyone. I mean, when it happened, everyone knew, right? Because I abruptly stepped away from the business. Right. And I came back. Everyone knew as well. Like, look, like I can't be I can't be there for all the meetings. I still have this schedule. Like, obviously, this is my life and still my main priority to to like get back to independence and recovery. Um, but I'm not going to give up on this business, right? So many people's livelihoods depended on this business. The investors gave us money because they believed a big part in me in addition to the business, right? And I, and I told everyone, I was like, hey, like, I think we can get this company to a better outcome, to a successful acquisition. You know, give me, give me six months. Um, and, and that, I think, really renewed everyone's um, energy to be like, all right, you know, got the CEO pretty much coming back from a very, very terrible situation. If he can push through, we can all give, you know, give our 110% and, and get to. Yeah. Get I to mean, here's our down. fearless leader who can't even wiggle his toes right now. And he's saying, we're going to make this happen. You know, let's go guys. We can do this. So that, that's, that's the amazing attitude. You know, it's, you find out what's inside of you, you know, Anthony, when, when something terrible happens and, I like to tell people it's that human spirit that we have inside of us that can really push us to places that we never thought that we could go on our own. 
And so it sounds like you had yours and you summoned it at an early time. And, and that was what was amazing that was able to, to save that company. How about, did you hear from Mr. Uh, Burnett and Cuban and Teal after your injury? I mean, they, they all knew about my injury. Uh, they had sent me, you know, sent me some emails and things like that. But, um, you know, I think at that point in the business, it was really just, I, I needed to be the one like reaching out. Yeah. Uh, so really, I think our, our sort of business relationship was still kind of unchanged, right? It wasn't like they became way more involved when I got hurt or anything like that. Yeah. There are the people that are just like, Hey, we gave you the money. We trust you to do whatever you see fit with the money. And, you know, either way it's okay. type of thing. Yes. Yes. Now I see that you're pretty active on social media and I, I found a really cool quote that you had on LinkedIn before, and it's life-changing success doesn't happen because of a single ma massive action. It's just the opposite. Focusing on small gains might not be easy or sexy, but they still matter. When you compound small gains over time, you'll be surprised at what you can accomplish. Now, is this the mindset that you used towards your recovery and now your business pursuits? Yeah, I think it's it's really been my mindset towards everything, right? Because especially with spinal cord injuries, it can be so frustrating, right? We all know it's like you're working, working, you're trying to make this damn thing move, and it's just not moving, and suddenly you, know, you get a little wiggle, right? And you just got to work every single day to make it stronger, even though you're not noticing progress day by day. Um, and I think it's the same thing with business, right? It's a lot of the the groundwork that you put in that, then turns into an overnight public success, but it really wasn't overnight. No, it's never overnight. And now getting back to Envoy, how soon after um, you leave Colorado and, and touch back down in Los Angeles, is it that the company is burgeoning again and is being acquired? Yeah, so this was pretty much exactly six months. Uh, you know, I gave gave ourselves a company deadline. We're able to turn the business around pretty quickly, have, have really incredible growth um, and a trajectory. And, you know, it was at a time where there was a lot of acquisitions happening in the food service space, right? Because it's really a land grab. Um, so we had these much more well-funded companies approach us and we're able to get a good acquisition uh, by, by Joyrun, which ended up getting bought by Walmart uh, pretty shortly after. Uh, and, and, you know, that was, that was a great outcome for, for all of us. Oh my gosh. I mean, how psyched were you at the time? And, and those folks that called you when you were at Craig and said, oh, I don't think we can do it. We should, you know, we should cash in and give our money back. Were they, were they in on the party when you got sold? Um, no, I mean, they, they were out. So, um, you know, we, we just separated ways, you know, pretty much more than a year ago. So we definitely... Uh, you know, they definitely were not a part of that. Well, that's good that you were able to, you know, sometimes you find out, Anthony, who's in the foxhole with you when you know what hits the fan. And so it sounded Thanks. like you, you found the right people and they, you went to war together with them or went to work together with them. And um, to be able to get this outcome was awesome. And so from there, you go from Envoy now. I know your next venture was something called Know Your VC. What is that and what is the main goal of that company? So Know Your VC was really meant to be a um, tool to help increase transparency in the founder and venture capital market. Uh, this was around the time where, you know, the whole Harvey Weinstein thing was going down. So it was just every single day you'd hear news of more more men and women coming out and accusing him of the horrible things that he's done. And at the same time in Silicon Valley, a bunch of big high profile venture capitalists were getting accused, but obviously it wasn't as mainstream as, as Harvey Weinstein. But to me, it was, it was kind of crazy because I was like, wow, well, being a founder is hard enough. Uh, fundraising is extremely hard. Um, but at least since I was a male, I didn't, I didn't have to deal with this sort of like sexual harassment and discrimination and, and sort of propositioning that a lot of these female entrepreneurs were having to face. I just thought that was pretty terrible because I, some of these VCs that were accused, I had, I had pitched, um, I'd never had an issue with them. And just to see that they were, you know, that was their true character and that they would really take advantage of people who, you know, come from an, you know, honestly a disadvantaged position was, was pretty awful. 
So this tool is meant to just be like a glass door or a Yelp sort of tool to be like, hey, like, you know, what what is this VC's actual reputation before yeah. you take their Yeah, sort of a warning sign to people, buyer beware kind of a thing. Is that what it was? Yeah, it, and it wasn't just bad. Actually, most of, most of the, pot, the reviews were positive, but it's like you want to know, you want to know the good and the bad, right? And uh, not just for founders, but for investors, right? If you're if you're a co-investor um, and you're both on the board of a company, and that other board member is a real, you know what, right? Like that's still awful. Yeah. So it, it helped both sides of the party just be able to expose some true colors. Yeah, because it's a reflection on you. You know, you might not know about it, and that's when it hurts when you you find out that so and so's got some skeletons in their closet, and that you know, is a definite reflection on you and your business, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now did that business get sold as well? Yeah. So that one was, was sold pretty quickly about a year in. Um, we got bought by a company called Rate My Investor. Uh, and they just had more resources than us and were, were willing to kind of continue the mission of the company. And, um, you know, with, with no VC, I never really imagined it as being like my, like, something I dedicated my next 10 years to, right? It was something I felt strongly should exist. Something that me and a couple of buddies just like put together over a few weeks and we let it loose in the wild and it it started just getting a lot of traction, more, way more than we could have expected. So having that, you know, that new home for the company where, you know, there was a full team in place to help grow the business was, was really the best possible outcome we could have had. Yeah. You mentioned a team. Do you have like a group of guys and girls uh, that you, you know, get together and sort of, you know, throw as much, you know, what at the wall uh, to see what sticks as far as your next, um, what the next big idea is? Is that is that really how you come up with these businesses? Because I know that's not like, hey, you just snap your finger and you're you're getting bought out. There's a lot that goes into it. Is that is that what it's like? You know, like. Uh, almost a band gets together and they put lyrics together and then so-and-so writes the music and it takes a while to come together. Is that the sort of collaboration it takes? Um, it, it's, it's, it's really all of that, but I am the, uh, I'm the band, I'm the entire thing. So I, I just do a lot of thinking um, and most of my ideas are pretty terrible. My wife, my wife can tell you that as well. So what I do is I just like, you know, sometimes I'll just write up business plans for entire businesses and I'll spend like, entire week researching the industry talking to talking to people in the industry and just coming up with an idea of if i think it's viable or not and you know just like shark tank i go pitch uh the most important shark which is which is my wife mckenna <laughs> on if it's or not and she, most of the time she'll like rip it to shreds and i'll be like oh you know this is fair because i'm i'm very much so an optimist and she's very much so a realist um and I've probably got like 30 to 50 of these ideas in my computer that are all shut down. But the one idea that wasn't shut down um, became my next business, VinoVest. Yeah, which leads me into VinoVest. Tell us about that. Um, it was obviously, are you a wine drinker? Was was wine that was something that was on your mind? And then you started to think there's really not a niche for what I can do with this. And um, did McKenna give you a, a full thumbs up on the, on the VinoVest? Yeah, so I, I think I've always loved wine, but especially after my injury, um, wine was really one of the only things I could independently drink. Um, and that being like, you know, the shape of the wine glass, uh, I could like kind of put my fingers through and even though I didn't have hand function, be able to lift up I mean, and it not fall out of my hand. So, you know, I I really liked that. <laughs> really sure. liked being able to table. And I couldn't really, you know, obviously with, with a beer, it's pretty heavy and, you know, you don't want to stick a straw and drink a beer from a straw. Right. So, um, you know, wine just became my drink of choice out of, out of like necessity. Um, and then as I was just getting more and more into wine and we visited some wineries, I was like, wow, this is a really cool space. And, you know, really realized that some of these older bottles were more expensive than some of the newer release ones. And I was like, Oh, why is that? Right. And it's because wine gets better with age and also over time, there's just less and less of those bottles, right? Because a 10 year bottle just is, has much more consumption behind it. It's much more rare. And those basic fundamentals of supply and demand uh, really spoke out to me. I was like, wow, this could, this could be a business, right? You buy young bottles, you hold on to them and you sell them all they're older at a higher price, right? It seems pretty simple. Um, But turns out the actual act of doing it 
requires storage houses, requires you know insurance and brokers and auctions. So uh, the actual execution was was very difficult, and that's that's when I realized that hey, we could get a lot more people in the space investing and in collecting in wine if if we made it more accessible to them. Absolutely. And what sort of a collection do you have? Do you have a a, a nice portfolio? Yeah, I've got I've got a few thousand up bottles now. Um, have to, you know, have to eat my own dog food, right? So, um, <laughs> got my Vino Vest portfolio, and they've got my wines, you know, all all secured in in France, uh, in Napa Valley, and out of sight and out of temptation. And I got a smaller smaller wine fridge here at home of wines that I drink. So I I, I do keep my investment wines very separate from my drinking wines. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And is that has that uh, business been sold, or do you still have it on hand? Yeah, this is still my baby. So this is something that I've really just become more and more passionate about. I think just the world of investing is is really interesting to me and being able to do it in something that has as much history as wine. And the fact that, you know, most people know that wine gets better with age. You don't need to be a wine expert to know that. But um, most people didn't even know that you could invest in wine, right? I didn't know that. Most people don't. And I think just opening their eyes to this and educating them and providing an easy way to do it where previously you had to be pretty wealthy to be able to afford wine investment. I think that is that is a worthy mission to pursue for the next 10 years. Yes. I had an episode of the podcast a few back in which I interviewed uh, Yannick Benjamin, who is uh, sommelier and a restaurateur here in New York City. He owns an amazing restaurant. I still haven't been able to get there because he opened right when COVID hit and it's been sort of a hit or miss thing. It's called Contento. Um, and he, I don't really know the first thing about wine. And so when I had him on, he was educating me uh, a little bit more and I look forward to going to have dinner at his restaurant. Are you familiar with Yannick? Yeah. So he was one of the first people I consulted um, when I was starting the business. So uh, he's, you know, he's a great, great wealth of knowledge. I think one of the only people who has a spinal cord injury who is in the wine industry that I know of. So uh, it's, a, it's a very small space. It sure is. And he's a terrific guy. I had a great time getting to know him. What a yeah. small world. I've had him on and now you on. I've got some, uh, some wine people here. This is great. Yeah. And he made this really cool adaptation um, as a sommelier that helps him carry, you know, all of the wine glasses and all of the sort of openers and tools that you need as a sommelier that was adapted to his wheelchair, right? Because yeah. you think about being a som, right? A lot of it's just steady hands. Yes. Um, when your hands are wielding a wheelchair, it might not be that steady. So he made this really cool uh, adaptation um, on, on his, on his uh, wheelchair that is kind of like a wooden board that had like the right pegs and holes in it. So that was something that I you know really inquired as I was looking to get more into wine, but a big problem of mine was like, I can only hold one wine glass at a time. Mm -hmm. How can I be able to like do the whole thing? Well, as they say, necessity is the mother of all invention, right? Yeah, he needed that. So Anthony, what is next for you business-wise? Do you have any, uh, I heard you say you have about 30 or 40 things on your phone there. Are you beginning to get the itch to start something new or is all of your time uh, right now wrapped up with VinoVest? Um, all my time's in Vino Vest. There's just so much more to do, um, and it's it's definitely the most exciting business I've been a part of today. Mm -hmm. Can I ask? Do you have any ideas for 54 year old wannabe podcasters who really can't seem to get them off the ground? Oh, I, I wish I had an answer for that, but I think <laughs> my best advice for you would just be consistency, right? I think uh, you never know which podcast is going to be the hit that like really changes someone's perspective, right? Or be the one that really um, is is shared around a lot. So I think it's really about being able to have that consistent production so that your audience knows, you know, what you're about and and being able to kind of ex expand it to a place that is, is, you know, helping people learn something. So I think that's, that's why I listen to podcasts, right? I want to feel smarter or or gain insight and, and, and have that sort of consistency and knowing when I subscribe to a podcast. 
Absolutely. Well, that's the goal that I have here. I just need to, I need to get some more ears on it, you know, because uh, I've been trying to get into the different hospitals like Craig and, and Shepherd and, and the Miami project down there to get, uh, to be able to tell stories about people who have had terrible things happen to them, but they haven't, you know, thrown in the towel and have gone on to do amazing things like yourself and like Rebecca and all the folks that I've had on here. So that is the goal. I'm hoping to, uh, as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. You certainly know that, be putting your businesses together. Absolutely. Yes. And last but not least, I always ask this question. I save it for last for all of my for all of my guests. Is um if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able bodied once again, what is the first thing that you would do? Oh. I mean, just stand up and hug my wife. I think, you know, just I, I use a standing frame sometimes and it's always just such a great feeling to be able to hug McKenna and like, you know, be taller than her and, you know, do things like that. So that'd be number one. That's terrific. That's a great answer. I've had some other funny ones. I had um, a, a friend of mine say he would open the front door and run naked down the street. I've had another guy tell me he would stand in front of the toilet and just go to the bathroom without anybody around him. Um, and mine was always, I would get my earbuds on and go out for a run and just, you know, be able to taste the sweat as it dripped down my face. You know, we're all, we're all different, but, um, it certainly is a question that we all like to answer. I know. True. Do you sweat by the way? I do a little bit. Yeah. But I, I can't really regulate. So when it gets really hot out, Anthony, I got to stay inside because, you know, you start to get that sort of dysreflexia and it's not a good feeling. Had a, I, last year I had a heat stroke and a seizure because because of that um, and yeah it was it was scary. It is scary. Did you have to go to the hospital? Um, unfortunately not. Uh, we had uh, McKenna's dad is actually a doctor, so we we did call him because I was just you know just really out of it. Yeah, but just easy for the next couple of days. But yeah, I, I I don't sweat at all, so definitely it was just like everyone pouring ice cubes all over me to help you know drop my body temperature. Yeah. It's it's scary. Uh, as I said, um, we're supposed to get a storm roll through here later, but tomorrow and the rest of the week, it's going to be in the upper 90s. And so I will be enjoying the air conditioning. Yes, please do. Not, stay, stay cool, but not too cold, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, Anthony Zhang, I want to thank you so much for carving out some time uh, of your busy schedule to join me here on the quadcast. It was a pleasure getting to hear your story, getting to know you. And I look forward to keeping track of what you're up to in the future. Likewise. Thanks so much for reaching out and having me on. I must give a tip of the cap to Rebecca Torres for giving me the lead on Anthony Jang. Thank you, Rebecca, for not only all you do with backbones, but your suggestion today was a home run. As Anthony underscored for us, building successful businesses doesn't happen overnight. We here at the Quadcast can attest to that. So, if you like what you heard today, please tell a friend or ten. Together we can spread inspirational stories to a world in need of them. Thanks, as always, to my audio mixer extraordinaire, Chris Parapesco at Harbor Picture Company, for landing the plane. Until next time, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care.